Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast that Brooke Shields and Alan Menken both don't want you to hear. Steve Martin is probably okay with it. It's monkeys and playbills. <laughs> welcome, everybody. We're back. Just the, the two of us, hey, Paul? Just the two of us. And producer Daphne. As always. I am also here. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no guest today other than Brooke Shields, as mentioned. Oh. Just kidding. She's not coming. No, she was a maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so far, a no show. And why would Brooke Shields and Alan Menken not want us to hear this episode? Well, Jill, I'm glad you asked. It's because this is Monkeys and Playbills, the podcast where we dissect shows that had runs of 100 performances or fewer on Broadway. And what the heck happened? And today we're talking about... Alan Menken and Glenn Slater's Leap, leap of, of faith. faith. And we're all going to need to take a leap of faith while we dive into this one. Boy, oh boy. I'm glad we don't have a guest so we didn't subject anyone else to having to research this show. Mm-hmm. First of all, it is not our intention to dunk on shows. A lot of hard work goes into musicals, into creating musicals, and a lot of people's livelihood is at stake. Mm-hmm. That said, sometimes you come across a show whose very core and content you disagree with so wholeheartedly. That it makes you grumpy. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> and here we are. Previews began at the St. James Theatre on April 3rd, 2012. It opened on April 26th, 2012. And it closed, oh, so quickly on May 13th, 2012. After 25 previews and 19 performances. And I believe that is our lowest yet. I believe so. Not the lowest we will ever cover. Nope. Um, I can't, especially can't wait until we cover um, true Canadian Broadway story, Story of My Life, which I think had like two after previews or something like that. Ooh, I think Breakfast at Tiffany's didn't even make it out of previews. Oh. Or maybe it had like one. I think I remember that film. <laughs> like if I recall, Jill, didn't we both kind of like it? Oh, Paul. This is why we're friends. <laughs> 19, 19 performances, closes... After being in development for like five years. Something like that. So what can we say to provide the necessary context for Leap of Faith for people just leaping in right now? Well, it is based on a movie. Believe it or not. Of the same name. The movie was written by Janice Sircone, who has, I think, written some plays. Nothing like super, super successful, I don't think. Nevertheless, she wrote this movie and the movie wasn't half bad. Okay. Okay. So that at least should be a jumping off point that might make a good musical. So let me ask you this, because it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a movie that stars Steve Martin. Yeah, my best friend, banjo playing Steve Martin. Absolutely. Steve Martin has made many legendary movies. Mm-hmm. And also he made Leap of Faith. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what? I have these sort of like rose-colored glasses for anything that he does. Sure. So it's hard for me to remove them, you know, just to watch this when I've seen him in like Father of the Bride and Father of the Bride Part 2 and uh, all those other really great movies. Wasn't he in um the one with John Candy? Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yes, that I only just saw like a year ago. David oh, made me watch it because it's me? one of his favorites. And I it really upset me. It really upset me deeply. Because Steve Martin's quite a mean man in that. Yeah, he's not a good human. <laughs> no, fair enough. <laughs> um, so, Alan Menken, and I believe it looks like Alan Menken was the driving force behind this adaptation, mm -hmm. is like, this movie is it. This um, <laughs> relatively obscure... <laughs> This is the Steve Martin movie I want to make a musical out of. Let's push it forward. And and push he did. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about who Alan Menken was in a bit. I'm really excited. I think this is the only time we'll ever get to talk about Alan Menken. I think you're right. Because um, Alan Menken is typically an enormous success. Mm -hmm. Or his shows are so bad they never even hit the Broadway stage. It's one or the other. <laughs> We're going to talk about the star, Raul Esparza, who is... A polarizing figure in Jill and Mai's eyes, to say the least. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to dive into what makes this show so difficult to even get through. <laughs> Here we go. So should we try the synopsis game? I would love to. Here we go. So. 
Leap of Faith is basically, it's like a music man. Mm-hmm. Um, in that it's a con man comes to a small town, but actually has a, ostensibly has a heart of gold. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> so it's about this man, Jonah Nightingale, and his traveling gospel choir that does tent revivals all over the United States. Not to be confused with musical revivals. Nope. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Two very separate things. <laughs> or camping tents. Yeah. <laughs> which are also different from this. <laughs> it's neither of those. They're tent revivals. <laughs> but these revi- these tent revivals are cons. They ask for a bunch of money and then they bail on the town. So as such, they've been banned from a bunch of towns in the United States. Oh, I need to mention, this is a play within a play. Mm, the musical is, yes. Of course it is. Of course it is. Of course is. it yep. is. Oh, problem number one. The show starts with Jonas and his choir performing in the Broadway theater. Correct. In the St. James Theater. Directly addressing the audience and being like, I'm going to tell you a story. Oh, God. And then he goes on to tell the story of what happened a year ago when him and his choir, they're on their way to Topeka, Kansas. They can't go there because there's an arrest warrant out for Jonas. Yeah. Or their bus breaks down. Both, it looks like. Both? Yeah. Probably both. Knowing this musical, it's probably both. I, I literally haven't gotten past the first, like, five minutes of the show. Oh, my God. It's okay. It's all downhill from here. So they're in this town called Sweetwater. Mm-hmm. And the um, the sheriff is really grumpy with them and knows, oh, you better not set up your tent revival. But then they do anyways. And everyone likes it. And they do their con. And the sheriff has a son who is in a, who uses a wheelchair to uh, to get around. And they do, like, a fake wheelchair healing which is a common thing in a tent revival and is also uh kind of ableist bullshit which is mm-hmm. ties into this whole one of the enormous problems with the show because this is central to the plot and the the kid sees this and is like oh so he can totally heal me from my wheelchair mm-hmm. and the mom is like no i don't think he can jonas nightingale you suck you better get out of here and not get my son's hopes up mm-hmm. but then they sleep together yeah and quickly, which that's not the thing I'm judging. No. Anyway, the circumstances surrounding how they get there, but... Yes, the actual the <laughs> actual speed with which they become intimate is the little least that's, problem yeah, in their whole relationship. Yeah, that doesn't bother me. Yeah. <laughs> We're very sex positive here on Monkeys and Playbills. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but then there's also a thing, there's like a whole subplot. Ugh, yeah. In Jonas's choir, his sister travels with him, and so does a woman named Ida May. Love her. But yes. Ida May's great. And Ida May's got a son or a nephew? Son, yep. Um, who's a um, a young Leslie Odom Jr. And I would say probably the best part he's ever done. <laughs> Certainly the only thing... It's I, the only I, thing I, The only thing anyone mind, would know him for. Really? Yeah, yeah, I can't think of anything else you would oh, know. Oh, I did see him as the main model for the brand Fossil recently. Oh, that's what it was. That's where... That's what I know him from. Totally. Absolutely. The watches. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I should have. Can we go back on that? Because I want to go. There's this, um, this, uh, her nephew is played by, wait for it, Leslie Odom Jr. Oh. <laughs> oh, that would have been, that would have been good. That's okay. You, you still said it and maybe Daphne I'll will... do some fancy editing to make you sound really funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would really prefer you leave it as is. <laughs> because the point is, I'm very clearly circling this because I desperately don't want to keep telling, talking about the plot of this. Because it's so convoluted. Yep, it really is. Leslie Odom Jr. is a Bible college student. Uh, Yeah, he's in like divinity school or something. Yeah, and there's no reason for him to be in this show, but he finds out that it's a con and he's grumpy about that, but he doesn't do much. His sister can really sing. Somehow we get to the point where we get to the third third night of their tent revival before they're going to do this kickoff and they're going to get out of here um, and con everyone out of their money. Oh, and um, Sweetwater has a drought, so there. Everyone also not only does this um, this kid not want to use a wheelchair to uh, to get around anymore. There's a drought mm-hmm. that needs to be cured. Yep. So we get to the third day. Um, they do their tent revival. The question is: Is Jonas going to try to um, pretend to heal this kid? Obviously, he doesn't have any any actual powers from God or not, and he does give it a try, and the kid actually walks. Yeah. And Jonas has a crisis of faith and sings a song Mm -hmm. that they didn't even bother to give a name. It's literally just called Jonas's Soliloquy. Yep. Then it's the end. Does Jonas leave the tent revival and Leslie Odom Jr. takes it over? He goes like wandering in the middle of the night. It's so hard because in the movie, he actually leaves town and never comes back. 
is my understanding. I didn't I didn't watch it like you did, but right. I read a synopsis of the movie and it's um he he leaves town and it starts to rain. Yeah. And it's kind of more of a it seems it sounds beautiful, to be honest. It's actually quite nice, the ending. And also because it's open-ended in that the last kind of thing you see is the truck driving yeah. that he's hitchhiking in. So the truck is driving and he's excited about the rain. Yes. And that's pretty much the end. And so you get to decide, oh, does he ask the truck driver to turn around or, do, you know? But in this musical, he kind of stumbles back to the tent where that they're taking down. And um, the sheriff yeah. love interest convinces him to stay by saying, take, take this leap and holding out her hand. But also it's a year later and he's doing a revival in a Broadway theater. Right. So then he steps out of that and addresses the audience. And he's, but he's still doing it a year later. Anyways, that's, I think, I think that's, that was succinct. I would defy anyone to get in more succinct than that after seeing this. That was only about nine minutes. <laughs> right? Okay. If I was going to license this show, what would it say? It would say the following, and this is from guidetomusicaltheater.com, so we know it's official. It says, A con artist, the Reverend Jonas Nightingale, travels with his ministry, but his bus breaks down in a small Kansas town. The sometime reverend, and I don't know if it's sometime or some time. Anyway, whatever. The sometime <laughs> reverend pitches a tent and invites the townspeople to a revival. However, the sheriff, a woman named Marla McGowan, is determined to stop Jonas from taking the people's money. Jonas is challenged when he becomes romantically involved with the sheriff. Her love forces the cynical reverend to come to terms with his life. And that's what they wrote. And they didn't include anything about her son or the subplot about the angels nothing the angels is his choir yes yes yeah. it's worth knowing there's no no literal angels but there might as well be <laughs> i might prefer that so i'm really this is one of these things where i'm really glad we have this formula at this point to dissect a show mm -hmm. because otherwise i would just go on for hours yeah in rambling about the problems with this show like, you wouldn't even know where to begin. Absolutely. And I don't know where to begin. <laughs> so, should we start with the music and lyrics? I would love to. Music by Alan Menken. Lyrics by Glenn Slater. Book by Janice Circone, who wrote the movie and also collaborated alongside Warren Late for this script. The music was orchestrated by friend of the podcast, Michael Starobin. And I would say Joseph Joubert. The vocal arrangements and the incidental music arrangements were by Michael Kassarin. Michael Kassarin is a boss. I love him to death. I've worked on his arrangements for Sister Act a few hundred times. And we're going to talk about Sister Act a lot in this episode. His work is excellent here. Yes. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is one of the few times I'm going to be positive this episode. And I'm just excited to do it. <laughs> and then the dance music arrangements were by Zane Mark. Great. So that's everyone who contributed to the sort of the writing, the composition. This is a fascinating piece musically for a few reasons. One is that it's this later period Alan Menken. Alan Menken, for those of you who don't know at home, is a super influential musician, um, composer, who was a kind of quirky, off-Broadway uh, composer with a great sense of humor. He was a part of a writing team with an incredible writer named Howard Ashman. Yes. This writing team had written um, some weird off-Broadway shows, notably Little Shop of Horrors, mm -hmm. which kind of became this cult classic off-Broadway show. And through that managed to... Actually, even before... So even before... All the big stuff happened. Alan Menken had already received like a Lifetime Achievement Award or something like that from BMI Musical Work Theater Workshop. He's very well respected. And him and Howard Ashman end up booking the gig on Little Mermaid to provide music for it. Mm -hmm. And it's an enormous success. And they become the music writing team for the Disney Renaissance and become the sound of the Disney Renaissance. What's more important to delve into in this episode is that Howard Ashman, Alan Menken's longtime writing partner, passes away. He gets sick and passes away during the writing of Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. There's a really beautiful documentary that, um, Jill, were you the one who texted me about this documentary? Yeah, I was. I was going to say, I was going <laughs> to, as I was thinking about this episode, I was like, and a dear friend texted me about this documentary. Wait, <laughs> Hi, that was actually Jill, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so nice that you think of me as a dear friend. Of course I do. Who would text you those things. That's so great. But yes, it was me. And it's on Disney Plus if anyone cares to watch. It's very moving and also kind of wonderful to get that glimpse into the, the writing aspect. 
So all throughout the 90s, Alan Menken continues to write almost exclusively for Disney, either writing the score for any of the movies in the uh, Disney Renaissance, all the way up to uh, Home on the Range, believe it or not, as well as working with various other lyricists to write those movies and to turn things like Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid into stage musicals. Mm -hmm. In the early 2000s, right around, right after he gets Little Mermaid up on stage, something happens, and I'm not sure what, but he decides to start writing for theater again. Huh. Um, and he starts adapting. He, he, he attaches himself to a few projects that all come to fruition around the same time here. Mm -hmm. One is Leap of Faith. One is Sister Act. Yep. And one is Newsies. And I guess Newsies is, a Disney, is a still a Disney theatrical. Yes. But it's not an adaptation of an animated film. That's right. Yeah. This is very fascinating because musically, this show kind of runs parallel to Sister Act in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. but is very different in a lot of ways. And I should mention, dear viewers, for those who don't know, all my friends and colleagues know this, I've made an enormous career out of doing Sister Act all over Canada. <laughs> I've been the music director on three separate professional productions of Sister Act. I've seen the currently licensed version of Sister Act over 200 times, probably. Oh, wow. Played it over 200, 300 times. I like it a lot. Not a show without flaws, but it's also a show that has, you know, bought me a car. Yeah. <laughs> among other, paid my rent many times over. And I have seen it once. Yay. So it's fascinating that Alan Menken is this voice of Disney theatricals and has this, this sweet gig, this incredible gig, and kind of moves from that back into the much harder trenches of um, composing a show for the stage. Throughout all this, like I mentioned, he's trying to find lyricist collaborators who speak with him as well as Howard Ashman did. Mm -hmm. And this breaks my heart. This, uh, As I think of, I've got a few creative partners who I really think speak to me on a creative level. How hard must it be to have your someone who is such a dear creative partner to you to lose them yeah. as your careers are starting to take off? I, I feel for him um, quite a bit. And he really never, in my opinion, finds a collaborator who quite works with him as well as Ashman does. Hmm. Um, I think Glenn Slater, who he wrote this with and wrote Sister Act with, is as close as you're going to get, as he gets. Right, yeah. But it still doesn't quite... Yeah, something's kind of missing there. Like Ellen Menken on Reflex writes a good song. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't write a great song without a great collaborator. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I speculated today that he's only written one and a half great musicals. And a lot of fine <laughs> musicals. And it's probably enough, you know? It's enough to, to survive or thrive, even. Like I'd say Little Shop of Horrors and Half of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> if that's all any of us get. That's incredible. <laughs> all right. That, so that diatribe aside, Jill, what do you think of this music? So this musical feels like they took the second Sister Act movie and chewed it up. And then regurgitated it into this musical. Right. It feels almost diluted, like gospel diluted. Yeah. And if it weren't for like the arrangers, I don't know if it would have even felt as vibrant as it ended up sounding. I think that's right on. So I feel a little like it's like at its core, there's really not much to it. It's quite lackluster. I think you're right on, Jill. Something that frustrates me a lot about Alan Menken scores is this is the same, this is similar to Sister Act, written almost at exactly the same time. It's a mix of pastiche writing. Mm -hmm. In the case of Sister Act, he moved it into the 70s and makes it kind of disco-y, right. which is a whole thing all on its own. And in this case, it's like modern gospel. Yeah. The scores are half that and half like straight up Disney songs. Yeah. Like some of the ballads, I'm just like, why is this part of your world? Like, like actually, yeah. Oh. It's rude. I have a bit more fondness for it than you do because I have a an innate love of Alan Menken and what he did to um, Broadway musical theater. Mm -hmm. I think as a music director as well, every music director I know, all of my colleagues, at least in the before times, we worked on like three Alan Menken shows a year. Mm -hmm. I've worked with him as a composer more than anyone else. So I do have a certain affinity for him. Right. There's no question of this in my mind. I'll say this right now. This score is the best part of this show. I'm sorry, you said this is the best part of the show? This is the best part of the show. Like from a, like a writing perspective or the, in generally. If we had to rate everything on the show, something has to be on top. And you think it's the music. I think this is the least bad part of the show. Wow. You disagree. Well, 
I don't know. I definitely don't think it's the worst part by any stretch, but Okay, well that's that's okay. We'll here we'll 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 read it. But there's like there's some nice songs. There's um the supper time ripoff. Are you on the bus? Or off the bus? Or oh. are you on yeah. the bus? Or Ooh, get okay. off the bus? Then get on the bus. <laughs> now you're back on the right. What's the one like the first song and it sounds kinda like nine to five? Working nine to five. What a way to make a living. <laughs> well, that song was in my head after I heard it. It's I think it's called Rise Up. And rise up, down, down, rise up. So true story, as I read through the script after having listened to the I listened to the whole soundtrack and immediately read through the script. Okay. And I couldn't remember any of the songs because yeah. they're a little forgettable. Correct. So I just heard everything to the tune of Rise Up. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> We're going to teach them this thing. We're going to tell them how to do this thing. We're going to do this Rise thing. Rise up. Right? Yeah. Isn't it kind of sad? <laughs> totally. Yep. A little bit. Yeah. What do you do if the economy sucks and there's rise something that sucks? Up. You rise yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't love Glenn Slater's lyrics. Oh, my God. Ugh. Ugh. I've talked about this before, and I'll always say this. If the song doesn't get me from one place to another on the journey of this story, I don't think we need it. Why don't you just make a scene? But there are so many songs that are just so unnecessary. Like, they don't get us anywhere. There's one that's especially egregious. It's when we first meet Leslie Odom Jr. Oh, God. It's like about his dad or something. Yeah, totally. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Something, something. You do this and this and this. Yep, that's like my dad taught me. Let me tell you about him. And then he sings a song called Walking Like Daddy. Yeah, and he's, he sings it so beautifully that I almost for a second, I'm like, this could really be nice. But to, to jump ahead for a second, I would actually say Leslie Autumn Jr. is the best part of this show. Yes, there you go. Um, so I, there, there we go, but we'll get to that <laughs> in a minute. If you had to rate this music and lyrics mm-hmm. on a scale of, let's say... Monkeys versus playbills. Okay, so like, would we maybe take 10 playbills and then wager the monkeys against those playbills? Let's try, let's try it. Okay. Let's, Hell, let's give it a try shot. Try it on. See how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> We're still workshopping it, so. <laughs> Out of 10 playbills, I give the music and lyrics a five. Yeah, I feel the same way. Maybe a six. Again, I can't get out of the back of my mind all the other things that Alan Menken was doing at the exact same time <laughs> yeah. that are far superior. Yeah. And so it's difficult for me to forget that to give this its rating. And now we have to talk about the book. No. Okay, well, my first thing about the book, it just says everyone has daddy issues, the end. Yeah. And like, I don't even like that term, daddy issues, but I really have no other way of articulating like the myriad of problems that this book has. Everyone's dysfunction is hand waved away by um, issues they have with father figures in their lives. Correct. And they use them as excuses to behave like reprehensible people. It is a bold move of this show to have a main character who is reprehensible throughout the show up until Mm -hmm. the very end and learns very little. Yeah. Even at the end, his redemption is virtually nothing. And it drives me up the wall. He didn't have to do anything. Yeah. He didn't have to atone (laughs) in any way. Let's talk about the book first on a macro level, then a micro level. Then I've got a question for you. On a macro level, the very, the broader plotting, let's talk about the problems. Oh, gosh. There's too many characters. Okay, again, the adaptation from movie to LA production to New York production has really muddied the waters. That's the the biggest kind of overarching problem that I see is because in my mind, uh, the LA production, which was a year and a half before the Broadway, I believe so, yep. Uh, Actually stays pretty true to the movie, as far as I can understand. Brooke Shields, spoiler alert, plays the... Marla. Okay, so her name is Marva in the movie. And in the LA show, her name is also Marva, and she's a waitress, as she is in the movie. Because also, because the sheriff is Liam Neeson in the movie, right? Liam Neeson! (laughs) Yes! And he's the one who's like actively trying to take down Jonas, which kind of is nice. Yep. Saying that it is loosely based on Leap of Faith is probably better than saying that it's Leap of Faith. That's the sense I've gotten. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. So that's one problem. Yeah. 
in talking about other, both on the macro and the micro level, I find it so easy to compare this show to The Music Man. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Music Man is a show that Jill and I, you know, we both love to death. Love it. Love it, love it to death. Um, and while this isn't a direct Music Man inspired show that I actually thought it was when I saw it on the Tony Awards back in 2012. Oh God. I'm, I'm sure we were together when we watched it. Virtually certain we were. Anyways, while it's not as directly of a um, of a Music Man-inspired piece as I thought it was when I saw it on the 2012 Tonys. There's no denying that we can look to Music Man as something that tells a story very similar to this in the musical theater medium very successfully. Yes. The reason I bring that up, we'll talk about it a lot when we talk about Jonas Nightingale's character and why Harold Hill does it way better than Jonas Nightingale. <laughs> but I find on a, a macro level... I don't like that we don't really meet anyone from the town. Oh my gosh, we really don't. Or the people that we meet are just like really poor representations of like what small town humans are. Yeah, so I'm not invested in the fact that Jonas is trying to con this town. Who cares? Mm-hmm. I couldn't care less. Sweetwater seems bad. We need for them to sing... Good night, ladies. What is the Iowa song? Oh, it's called Iowa Stubborn. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. we need Sweetwater Stubborn. Yeah. That's what we need. Like a good night ladies or a peck a little talk a little. Just to sure. just to get into the that world. These feel like actual people that he's ripping off. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like they're all choreographed in such a way where I'm like, oh, every person in this town is a member of like a hip hop company. <laughs> like they're all just like groovy people. Not to mention on a macro on a macro level, there's this whole plot point. This very big plot point where this kid desperately doesn't want to be in a wheelchair. And I can't get behind a main character who goes in faking faith healings and conning faith healings. And his redemption is, I still try to fake it. You know what I mean? Right. It's just, it's just absurd. (laughs) It drives me crazy. (laughs) And it borders on ableist. And I would say in sections is maybe even like overtly ableist. Yes. Yes, it is. You know, I would even speculate that's maybe why it didn't have a longer life. It doesn't have a longer life outside of Broadway in the community circles. Mm-hmm. That's an enormous problem. The characters of um, Marla and of Jonas Nightingale are two big problems as well. I would compare them to Harold Hill and Marion the Librarian as two ways that those archetypes can be done really well. Mm-hmm. Music Man does is a little dated, admittedly, but doesn't age uh, nearly as poorly as a lot of shows from that era. And those two characters, I think, stand up very well in a lot of places. I was going to say, I don't think it dates itself nearly as much as this does. And this is only like ha! 10 years old. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. So what's what does that tell you, you know? I would feel much more comfortable presenting a production of Music Man yes. than a production of Leap of Faith any day of the yes. week. Yes, <laughs> 100%. How about on a micro level? What do oh, you think God. of the actual dialogue? Oh, God. Crackles with wit. One-liners left and right. Oh. Absolutely. <laughs> Like, there's a Helen Keller joke. There is a Helen Keller joke early on and prominent. Yeah, it's like page 12 or 16. They're singing a song, I Can Read You. Jonas Nightingale and Marla are doing a flirty a flirty song. Once again, the actual musical structure, no problem with it. But there's like a, baby, even Helen Keller couldn't read you. Yeah. Woof. Yeah. Woof, woof, woof. Like, what? Jesus. Then... There's the whole, well, okay, this also might be a macro, though. The talk to the audience, the fourth wall convention of, like, let me tell you a story. Like, that's a problem for me. (laughs) It's an enormous problem. Like, can't we just see you come to town? Like, why do we have to know that you're telling us about the time you went to that town? Also, why did they set it in present day when there's, like, access to Google and Facebook where someone could easily Google Jonas Nightingale and then it's all over? (laughs) Whereas, like, in 1992, you couldn't do that. And okay, so, Jill, 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 Jill. Sorry. No, so it's okay. Sorry. We're going to, this, this keeps happening. This keeps happening to both of us. We take a breath. We stick to the formula. <laughs> we don't let Leap of Faith win. <laughs> it's winning. <laughs> anyway, I will, the one thing I will say is that you know that a book is problematic when the stage directions are also problematic. And there was one stage direction that said, another kiss, this one mutual. Like, that's a problem for me. Yeah. (laughs) Nope, 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 nope. nope. I'd forgotten about that. That's right. Yeah. And so if the actual script was any indication, like the real spoken lines... Like, when we see a stage direction that says that, that's kind of where I go. 
okay, the, the people, the writing team just have no idea. They just don't know. So my final question was, before we do ratings, why is Harold Hill charming and <laughs> Jonas Nightingale a disaster who we hate? Because I'm a sucker for a con man story. You are too. We love the music man. Yeah. Why is Jonas Nightingale so reprehensible where Harold Hill isn't? Oh, God. That's so interesting because I've never actually thought about why I want Harold Hill to win. Mm -hmm. Like in the music man, I want him to change. Yeah. Whereas Jonas, I just want him to leave. Yeah. <laughs> never come back. Get out of here. You're doing more harm than good. Because they're getting something in return, whether, like in The Music Man, I should say. Because he did order the instruments, right? He does order them. Yeah. In every town he goes to, he gets the instruments and delivers them and they get their outfits. He just leaves before he teaches them the music. So there's at least something that is returned to the conned folks, whereas Jonas just takes and takes emotionally and monetarily i don't know what do you think i would augment that even by saying harold hill's motivations are financial and he's a um he pulls a con but he's only really motivated by by money so that when something else comes into the picture like love and actually falling in love both with a um with a romantic partner and with the town mm -hmm. he's kind of starts to wrap his head around it and that's very compelling to watch jonas nightingale seems like someone in a lot of Someone in a mental health crisis on a destructive rampage? Oh, totally. Yes. You know what I mean? His motivation isn't financial. It's he's clearly got some deep-seated issues. Yeah. He's like, I want everyone to feel like I'm feeling. Yeah. He's kind of a monster. And, mm -hmm. you know, Harold Hill's never a monster. The stakes are totally different between, yeah. like, getting instruments for a town versus this kid in a wheelchair wants me to make him walk. And right. you're all starving because it doesn't rain. Those are very different stakes. Absolutely. Totally. Oh, gosh. All of this to say, I don't know, 7 <laughs> out of 10, 8 out of 10 for the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What do, you, what do you think, Jill? I don't know, Paul. I'm really struggling. I think it's like a 1. Yeah, I, I agree. 1, maybe. 1. <laughs> Yeah, why, well, I, I wanted to say maybe two, but what's the, why would I add a, I hated it. It's a one because they put words on paper. I think it's a disaster. And people spoke them and that's what their job was. So one. Yeah, absolutely. It's, as we saw before, impossible to summarize. It makes no sense. There's too many characters who aren't doing anything and not the right characters. The characters <laughs> behave in terrible ways. Hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. Should we move on to something a little lighter? What's next? Let's talk about the direction and choreography. So this was directed by Christopher Ashley, who is the AD of La Jolla uh, Playhouse and has been since 2007. And Christopher Ashley has also directed Memphis and Xanadu and Come From Away. He's actually a couple degrees away from being an actual friend of the podcast. Yay! Yeah. Choreography was done by Sergio Trujillo. And I actually had the opportunity to see some of Sergio's work live and in person when I saw All Shook Up on my very first trip to New York in 2005. That makes sense. Sergio's also a Canadian icon in a lot of ways. He spent a lot of time in the early 2000s at the Stratford Festival. Mm-hmm doing a lot of incredible work there, and he's another one who we're, we're just a couple of degrees of separation away from. Yeah. Also worth mentioning was that the LA production was directed by a friend of the podcast, Rob Ashford. That's right. Directed and choreographed by him. Who we talked about who directed that revival of Parade in the UK and was one of the assistant directors or assistant choreographers on the Broadway Parade that we talked about last episode. Mm -hmm. Welcome back, Rob Ashford. Uh, music direction by Brent Allen Huffman. And then the associate MD was Jason Michael Webb. And then, of course, as I always say, many million bajillion wonderful, intelligent, gifted, hardworking assistants. Absolutely. Okay, so Christopher Ashley. Now, Paul. Yes. Again, you always say that you don't really have a kind of grasp on that aspect of, of a show. But I wonder if you noticed anything in what you saw that maybe felt, made you feel a certain way, good or bad. I think Christopher Ashley's a very smart man. Mm -hmm. I'd like to tell Christopher Ashley's story first. <gasps> it's not a direct story. I've never met him, although I bet we would get along. Um, he seems nice. <laughs> yeah. But 
Anyone who has seen any of the versions of Come From Away knows that um, Christopher Ashley's Tony Award for direction was well-deserved. Yes, absolutely. He took a very, a very simple idea and used a lot of concepts and a lot of ideas that have been employed by people in fringe festivals the world over. Yes. And turns it into something Broadway-worthy that has become an international franchise. Mm -hmm. In the very end of the before times, I was in Toronto visiting my brother. And my whole family went to go see Come From Away, the Toronto uh, company. And we had an incredible time. Blown away. Come From Away is the feel-good show of the year. You laugh, you cry, you laugh again. It's um, <laughs> using eight chairs or whatever it is and uh, spotlights and um, follow spots to their greatest advantage. Yes. So much so that when we left the theater, my family was raving about, that's incredible. I loved it. It's incredible that we never see anything like that in Winnipeg. Um, and I was like, wow, that's so fascinating because this that's verbatim. These are the techniques that we use <laughs> in Winnipeg Fringe Theater. And and specifically, like, I think a lot of times when we work together. Absolutely. We always start with like, well, what's what's the least amount of stuff we can use? <laughs> They they had just seen Twelfth Night. Okay, where we, which which we did on a budget of zero dollars <laughs> with a snuggie and a Furby, a giant exactly. bear, and that's it. You know, and that's not a um, that's not a not a diss. We had an incredible time at Come From Away, and my parents, uh, my family enjoys the shows that uh, we put up in Winnipeg a lot as well. Mm -hmm. But it's a a testament to how effective Christopher Ashley is at using the techniques at his disposal. Yes, to create something incredible. That said, <laughs> I'm not sure if he is as successful here. Yes, and I think I know why. I get the impression that it's like a too many cooks situation. Well, there's no question of that. In terms of like design and like, you know, the writing team. Yeah. I think that there was probably a demand to make it kind of kitchen sink theater, like, you know, everything. Right. <laughs> and so... Having all of that stuff, it didn't allow uh, Christopher Ashley to do what he does best, which is to innovate. Yeah. And I, I just don't think he had room to because there was all this fake tent set up. <laughs> yeah. At this point, Christopher Ashley is probably, through Memphis, is already developing his reputation as a quality, feel-good director. Yes. Yes. He's going to make something quality. He's going to make something great. He's going to make something that makes you laugh, cry, and laugh again. And I wonder if he was almost their Hail Mary for Leap of Faith. Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah, okay. Because that's what you want Leap of Faith to be. You want it to be Memphis. You want it to be, not as far as content, obviously, but as far as emotion, Memphis or Come From Away. So it was like, get him in here. If anyone can do this, Christopher Ashley can. Unfortunately, I don't think he could. <laughs> but everyone got in his way. Yeah. And that sucks. Well, again, this is speculation. This is all, but... this is wild speculation. <laughs> Christopher Ashley, if you'd like to come on and talk about it, I'm friendly with David and Irene. I know they're your friends. Hi. I'm going to pick up that name you just <laughs> dropped there. Jesus. <laughs> I know, right? So should we separate the direction and choreo? We should absolutely separate the direction and the choreo because Sergio is such a, um, is a choreographer with such a strong voice. Yes. So out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys do you give the direction, Paul? Uh, six. Yeah, okay. I was going to say five. There's only so much even the best director can do with a uh, with a bad show. With a show that's rotten to the core. Yes. Yep. Christopher Ashley is a fantastic director um, with a good show. Like Come From Away. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel right on our podcast penalizing him for working on a bad show. Yes. Good point. Yeah. Let's talk about the choreo. Absolutely. I'm going to say, it seems like they're moving around a lot. They really are. Yeah. It's kind of Sergio Trujillo's thing, hey? It really is. Like, I get the impression... I wasn't going to say frantic. It's yeah. His choreo is very busy. Very busy, yep. I love the um, grounded nature of all his movements. Like, everyone is very in the floor, which I love. Everyone's got a nice deep plie. Everyone's like really <laughs> sure, yeah, feeling, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> feeling yeah. the earth, which is great. It's good because it's relatable in the sense that 
and I think I've mentioned this before, there's some satisfaction from an audience member looking at an ensemble of people and saying, I could totally do that. I could do that. Absolutely. Because it's really inspiring and accessible in some ways. But then when a person tries it, they're like, oh, this is exhausting and it's a lot of work. But I think there's something to be said about the accessibility of the movement (laughs) that he creates and specific to this this show. I'm, I'm laughing because as someone who is a very bad dancer... I never got the sense of like, oh yeah, I could do that. <laughs> I was like, wow, these are just the most athletic, in shape uh, people I've ever seen in my life throwing themselves around the stage. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny because I, I didn't really have that feeling. Sure, totally. Like I thought to myself like, oh yeah, I'd have to like maybe do some squats to prepare. But, like, sure. <laughs> but everything else I feel like, Yeah. So I like the accessibility of this choreography specifically. In the past, felt a little alienated by um, his movement in that I didn't necessarily recognize it. It never really... Well, okay, I'll just say it. I don't think that Sergio Trujillo's choreography is for the story. Mm -hmm. I think he's a snapshot choreographer, which is fine. I think that's okay. It's good for things like Jersey Boys and, and... Memphis, but I think here... It works so well for Jersey Boys. Yeah, I just think... And I don't know, maybe he doesn't have to be a story choreographer. Maybe I'm just imposing my own personal feelings about movement on him. But that's just my impression from seeing his work. You almost wonder if he was part of the Hail Mary. If it was like, let's get the Memphis team in here. I kind of get that feeling as well. Memphis was such a surprise hit a few years ago. No one expected it. Can we turn Leap of Faith into the next Memphis? Okay, but like... What was it even, like, playing at the same time as? Because that was the same year as, like, Hair Revival and, like, Liza. It was up against American Idiot and Fela. Right, which I saw. I saw Fela. Yeah, and it was bananas, right? Yeah, it was wild. I'm actually a little surprised that it didn't win. I remember it being an upset from my perspective, but a very bizarre best musical year to be up in. Yes. I don't mind Sergio uh, Trujillo's choreography in this. It is a little busy. I find myself hoping that it would be a little less, but that's also just where my personal tastes lie. Yeah. It looks great. It sounds great. There's a ton of stuff happening. Yes. All the body slapping, I actually like it a lot. Absolutely. (laughs) The stomping, if you will. What I really like about his choreography, and I guess the maybe even more than that, the input he probably had in the casting, Mm. there is a very wide, diverse range of body types. Yes. I actually am so glad you brought that up because I definitely noticed and I appreciate it so, so much. And they're, they're all doing the movement in the way that fits their body best. Yep. And that's clearly been signed off on and approved of wholeheartedly. Yes. And that's so cool to see. That's something that makes it very accessible for me as a non-dancer. When I see, like in this case specifically, there is in the Angels, there's one lanky white dude. Yeah. Um, who is, like me, a lanky white dude. <laughs> and I'm like, hey! Yeah. That looks great! Look exactly. to go, bud! Good for you! <laughs> That makes me very happy to see. And also it makes me sad because I still don't feel like we're at a place where that's happening enough. I agree completely. That's a whole other episode. That's an episode on its own. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so. (laughs) Leap of faith for all its faults kind of um, did okay on body positivity. (laughs) I know. Oh, wow. I never thought I would say that. I know. (laughs) Here we are. So out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys do you give the choreography? 6.5. 6.5. Ooh, nice. Okay. Yeah, how about you? I was going to say 7. Yeah. Because I also think it's executed really well. It is executed really well. It's super clean, well. which I appreciate, so. I'll give it a 7. There's so much strutting, man. Just the fact that no one <laughs> ends up off their breath at any point, you know? <laughs> like, everyone's back and forth on the stage, no question. Oh, you're Jeez. right. Yep. Yeah, let's go 7. Yeah, let's, let's call go it seven. a 7. Woohoo. All right. Design? Design. Heck yes, design. <laughs> <laughs> Scenic design by Robin Wagner has an extensive Broadway resume because he's like 80 years old. Heck yes. And so he's done so many things. Crazy for you. A chorus line. Jesus Christ Superstar. The original. Like these are the originals I'm talking about. (laughs) Promises, promises. Hair. The list goes on. It's endless. And this is his last credit. That's correct. Last Broadway anyway. I don't know if he maybe threw in the towel after that, (laughs) which I don't blame him. And then costumes by friend of the podcast, William Ivy Long. So William Ivy Long has done costumes, I think for Sideshow. Also Big Fish. 
Yep. So a lot of chat about him on our other episodes. <laughs> Lighting by Don Holder, also Big Fish, and then apparently really likes Laura Benanti because he did both My Fair Lady and She Loves Me. He also did the lighting for the King and I revival, the Lincoln Center one, I think, which I remember being very beautiful and striking. Cool. So, And then sound design, we have John Shivers, who, if nothing else, has a great last name. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, he did the sound design for Pretty Woman, and I'm hoping we get to talk about it, but I don't know. It might have cracked 100 performances. And then hair and wig design by Paul Huntley, also friend of the podcast, Big Fish, Fun Home, yep. and a bunch of other things. And then makeup by Angelina Avalone, also a friend of the podcast, Big Fish, Prince of Broadway. Jeez, dear friends left and right. So this design team is so experienced. Yeah. What happened? I feel I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say the set's bad. I don't like the set. It's really bad. That was the only thing I would go on record as saying I really disliked personally. The rest of, the rest of it, I'm like fine with for the most part. I hated the costumes except for the choir robes and some of Raul Esparza's blazers. I was going to say he's got a shiny blazer. Did you not like the shiny blazer? I love it. Oh, there but we it's go. iconic right. and they do it in the movie. So I'm kind of like, how imaginative did you really have to be? Yeah. There's something going on behind the scenes here where you've got, as we just discussed, a direction choreo team, this experience that popping out hits, mm -hmm. a design team that uh, that just comes to play like this. This show is how, if a show is rotten at its core, like we just discussed, as it is, there's nothing that can really save it. I have a theory. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it's if it's right. My guess is these are big names, right? Yeah. These folks might be really busy. And spring of 2012 was an incredibly busy like start to the or I guess end of this Broadway season. Absolutely it was. Show after show after show was opening. Plays, musicals, like so much stuff and I wonder did any of them work on other things? Maybe they were spread thin. I think we can say for sure that that was absolutely the case uh, going higher up in the uh, in the show hierarchy for Alan Menken and Glenn Slater. They were popping out Sister Act at the same time. Yeah. They were popping, um, Alan Menken was popping out Newsies at the same time. From what I understand, Newsies had a fairly painless birth. Mm, yeah. Previewed in paper, paper Mill, hit Broadway, huge hit, loved it. But Sister Act was a, uh, was a long and painful birth as well in the UK from what I understand. Right. Hmm. And had this composer lyricist team, I would speculate giving that a little more priority because it's a slightly bigger property and also opened first in its um, pre-Broadway. Yeah. I think speculating about that and going down to what we're kind of realizing is almost a, like a rep company of designers mm -hmm. working on these Broadway shows in the early to mid 2000s. Everyone's just tired. We're tired. We're done. We're sick of it. <laughs> yeah. And if the, if the, if the environment isn't right for them to create something beautiful, they, they can't. can't. Yeah. So the scene, the scene design, it's just, the, it's the tent, right? The tent is the thing. Yep. The tent and then some like fake, like scaffolding basically. Yeah. Or like rigs, fake rigs for like lighting and... Totally. It's too bad because a tent seems like it's such a promising um, design element. I know. But then I guess we've also, we've seen Sideshow as well that didn't really work there either. Well, Moulin Rouge is sort of like tent-like, is it not? Oh, it totally is. And they yeah. really went for it. I guess that's like a budget thing though. Yep. I can see that. Whenever we, whenever we finally see Greatest Showman on Broadway, it'll have a tent, oh, right? Oh God, please no. Oh, that's not even an opinion. That's just a fact. That's no. I guarantee that'll happen. <laughs> Out of 10 monkeys, how many playbills? Uh, like five. I would go lower. I'd go four. Ooh, they had clothes on. There was a set piece. Um, nope. Four plus one understudy slip for the sparkly blazer. Oh, uh, I would okay. like one, please. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about the cast. Oh, yeah. So do you think that Raul Esperza ever gets mad that Hugh Jackman has had the kind of career that he's had? Oh my god. Like, do you know what I mean? Okay, yes, I know exactly what you're saying. But, oh my god, I never in a million years thought I would say this. I think Hugh Jackman is a way better singer than Raul Esparza. What a weird voice Raul Esparza has. He has a voice similar to Lin-Manuel Miranda. Interesting. Go into more detail. Well, they're both that kind of like baritoner quality. Yep. Like there's like a, like I just don't even know what to call their voice type. Yeah, bar baritoners are a real deal. Yeah. There's an openness when they do get up into the higher registers when they're thinking about their technique. But a lot of the time they're thinking about the story, 
which isn't a bad thing. Like I totally, that's what we want. But the issue is like, (laughs) they oftentimes, I think you talked about this with Carolee Carmelo. She digs in deeper when she's getting more emotional. And then those guys tend to like constrict, I guess would be the word. It's this weird growl and yell almost, right? Yeah, which I think is okay sometimes, but he uses it all the time. And I'm just exhausted listening to him. And I'm like, how did you last? How can you possibly do eight shows a week? If we're talking about Raul Esparza, it's worth saying though, because whenever I get to talking about him, I think, no, but I like him (laughs) because he was in this production of Company. Yeah, which is a nice, he performed very well in that. He plays Bobby. He plays the central role in Company. And I think he's excellent. Yeah, I agree. We're going to talk about him more on this podcast. We've got, spoiler alert, a chess episode coming up in the next couple months. Ooh. And he was very significant in one of the productions of chess. I'm I'm not feeling good that day. So maybe I won't <laughs> do the chess episode. <laughs> you say that because you don't like Raul Esparza. In this show. Or most shows that I've seen him in. Very good. Except Company. Yep. Maybe it's just really good at this Jonas character. And so I'm like... Oh, maybe I just don't like you. I don't know. I need some time to really think about what it is. I just, something about him. I know exactly what you mean. I'm just like, there are so many women who perform 90 million times better than him. And look at the career he's had. And I'm just like, how he didn't have to work as hard. Like, I know that's not true. But totally. But like, it just gives me that impression where I'm like, so there's people out there who can sing, act and dance all at the same time, but you're the star. Yeah. Like, it's frustrating. (laughs) He's got, if we're delving into why he ended up in this track, he has kind of this manic energy that's like not dissimilar to a Steve Martin vibe. Yeah, no, that's true. I think he does have, despite his bizarre vibrato and growliness, a lot of vocal agility. (sighs) Yeah. He does. I, that's that's my take. That's my take. <laughs> and so the fact that he is going to be doing a lot of um, a lot of singing, you know, he's got crazy person eyes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he does. He's got super crazy eyes. And like during the soliloquy, he was like pulling some faces. I was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> he's a bad casting choice. It's not crazy. You know what I mean? It's not totally off base. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. You almost just want, and once again, this is the question, is this part of the, uh, is this a problem of the book or of his portrayal? You almost want him to have less going on. Mm, yeah. Once again, we don't need him to be so damaged, have gone through so much stuff that he's destroying everything around him. Yeah. Let's just see a, let's just see a Harold Hill. Yeah. <laughs> let's just see a guy who's kind of cynical about the world and learns to love. Yes. It's overcomplicated. It's a bizarre voice. I really like him in company. The end. The end. Yeah. There are a few really wonderful performances. Yeah, I agree. Like, really, you know, standout performances. Obviously, we've talked about Leslie Odom Jr. playing Isaiah. Excellent. Fantastic. Someone give this guy a bigger (laughs) part. I really (laughs) liked the woman who played his sister, Crystal Joy Brown. I did too. I'm glad to hear you say that. We've talked about her because she was in Big Fish and also is now in Hamilton. So they must... Who was she? I was going to say the Lady of the Lake, but I... (laughs) uh, Josephine... (laughs) Josephine Bloom, so the uh, fiancé and then wife of, yeah. Oh, cool. Good for her. Yeah. Crystal Joy Brown plays Ornella, who is Isaiah's sister, Leslie Odom Jr.'s sister. This show's so friggin' confusing. I just did a week's worth of research on this show. How can, you know what I mean? How can you be expected to pick up on this in one night? (laughs) I know. So all the siblings are very good. Yeah. That's what we decide. Ida May's not a sibling. We haven't talked about her yet. No, that's the mom that's of the mom. Leslie Odom Jr. and uh, Crystal Joy Brown. She sounds incredible. Oh, she's so good. She sounds great. And her general essence as well. I was yeah. just like very excited by her performance. So yes, um, supporting secondary characters, no notes. No notes. I wish we were using this cast better. Ensemble, no notes. Ensemble, love, love, love. Yeah. Once again, I wish they were given something better to do. (sighs) Seriously. But they did it all without even making fun of it once. So there. That's the mark of a truly great ensemble. (laughs) Oh, there's times when you're like, I wish I could be in the bar after like first preview or something with some of these guys. (laughs) You know what I mean? Just to see. what they're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So what about Marla and what about Jake? No. No. I want none of that. So this Marla track, the um, the love interest, they kept on trying to make this something really significant. I remember reading in one of the previews, they had, believe it or not, Sutton Foster doing it. I can't believe that. Who seems like a comically bad choice. Oh, God. 
right? No, nothing against Sutton. Sutton Foster is one of my favorites. But this seems so outside of her wheelhouse Ugh. in every way. And also this show is like weirdly similar to Violet. And so it's like maybe oh, in their sure. minds they're like, ooh, we'll do like Violet. <laughs> That's not crazy. But then like we hinted at, Brooke Shields did this for the entire LA run. Yep. Yep. She sure did. Um, reviews were not kind to her. So the reviewer from the LA uh, production, I was going to call it an out of town trial, but I don't even think it was. I think it was just an actual production. I think we have to call it that because that production never went to Broadway. It was retooled and the entire creative team was replaced. Yes. As was a bunch of the cast. Yep. Right. So this LA production had this review by Charles McNulty and Charles thought Brooke Shields looked amazing, (laughs) which like, yep. Good for her. A very beautiful woman. Absolutely. But he also writes, quote, Shields makes her musical confessions in a voice so tentative that it's easy to imagine cast members backstage crossing their fingers for her. No. End quote. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, and then in the next paragraph, he's like, well, you know, against all of these amazing and accomplished musical theater performers, like, of course, sure. she's going to yeah. sound like that. So... So then from there, they have, um, they get Jessica Phillips to step into this for Broadway. Jessica Phillips, who, um... Dun, dun. Oh, that was my Law & Order Did understudy and replacement work and ensemble work up to this point. Mm-hmm. Understudy Diana in The Next Normal, which is kind of cool. That's kind of yeah. a cool track to do. And I think Sergio Trujillo was on that as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Gosh, what a storied career for him. But anyway. Right? Isn't that cool? And then does Leap of Faith, and she is fine. Yeah, I wasn't even going to go as far as saying fine. Fair but enough. But she, <laughs> she sings okay. Yeah. I just find her quite boring. Yeah. She was, um, up until um, in the before times, she was in as the mom in Dear Evan Hansen, which makes good sense. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. Yeah. But again, I just, the material yeah. doesn't leave a lot of room. And what about poor sweet Talon Ackerman? Aw, Talon, you really tried. Yep, absolutely. (laughs) I feel especially bad for Talon to be put in a situation like this. Yeah. That was an irresponsible thing to do to a a young performer. Yeah, I agree. All in all, we've been up and down on this cast. Can you, in good conscience, rate Rallis Barza with the rest of the cast, or does he need his own rating? (sighs) Fine. I'll put them together. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) I No, I should really separate (laughs) them. Out of (laughs) ten, So they're not dragging the average down. Exactly. Because everyone except Raul Esparza, eight. It averages out to an eight. Raul Esparza, six and a half or seven. Not far off, just... That's higher than I thought you were going to go. And I agree. Okay. I have no trouble with that. Like I said, I like Raul Esparza a little more than you do. I think his voice is weird. I don't know how he could do eight shows a week, but I've never heard any stories of like company of company or something of him going down all the time. Yeah, that's true. If anyone has any specific experience with Raul Esparza going down often, please tell us. <laughs> Love to hear about that. It's mostly the problem is, to put a fine point on it, he's so good in company because he plays Bobby as someone who is basically emotionally abusive to his friends. Right. Right. Ugh. And that's so compelling in company. And that's so bad here. Yep. I hate him. I hate him. hate him. hate him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's... Let's All move on. Right. <laughs> if you had told me my least favorite musical of all time would be Leap of Faith, <laughs> I would have said no, and I'll tell you why. Because up until now, all I knew about Leap of Faith was this Tony Award performance. Oh my god. Okay, before we talk about this Tony performance, I need to say what Ben Brantley wrote in his review. Yes, Because it's going to summarize how you felt about this Tony performance. So Ben Brantley, obviously from the New York Times, friend of the podcast, who doesn't know it yet, (laughs) wrote the following, quote, Leap of Faith is this season's black hole of musical comedy sucking the energy (laughs) out of anyone who gets near it, end quote. (laughs) And that's how I feel about the Tony performance and also just generally about it. So this was a weird Tony year, hey? It was a weird year because it was was surprisingly stacked. (laughs) Yeah. 
and once took it and it was kind of this thing of like oh huh once is this very different thing from the um what is typically happening and what they're up against you know what i mean you're absolutely right maybe we should clarify for people who might not know this the tony year is uh, it runs usually at the very end of April until the following year, end of April. Like it's yep. that kind of a year. Yeah. And so anything that was open by April 27th, 2012 was eligible for that Tony year. And this show, Leap of Faith, opened on the 26th of April. So it yeah. squeezed in. And then closed immediately. Yeah. Like didn't couldn't even hold out till the Tonys to maybe see. It's already closed when they're performing here. So, so everything that was eligible up to that point, I shouldn't say everything because once uh, one and it opened in the year before 2011. Yeah. But uh, from January until April of, of 2012, Newsies, Ghost, Evita, Porgy and Best, Jesus Christ Superstar, Star, nice work if you can get it. Like so many things were opening and of course some revivals mixed in there, but it was just like an overcrowded Tony year. It's a bananas. Peter and the Starcatchers in that year as well. That's it's in the play right. category, so you didn't see it. This is also the year the legendary, the musical that we will someday talk about, I promise, keep listening, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark yeah. finally became eligible. Oh my God. It had been previewing in New York forever. For like a year. <laughs> yeah, but it was finally open. This is the season where it was finally considered for opening. Oh my God. Yeah. Ugh. So just a bananas year. Like there was no question Once was going to win. Because mm -hmm. Once was, everyone was all about Once. Newsies was kind of like, oh, this fun, everyone dancing and jumping around. You know, just everyone, all these happy 19-year-old um, male male dancers loving their lives. Yep. <laughs> and Leap of Faith was this bizarre other Alan Menken show that no one knew anything about. Yes. All I knew was from the opening description, it sounded like Music Man, but gospel music. <laughs> And that's what, and that's what the performance, watch the performance again with that in mind. That's kind of what it seems like as well. Ugh, totally. It seems like he, these are all people in this town and he sells a gospel choir to this town and <laughs> they didn't even, um, they didn't even bother to put, um, Talon Ackerman in a wheelchair. No, no. Um, he just walks out on stage and dances with everyone else. Totally. At the time I thought, oh, that seems kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Music man and uh, gospel music. Great, oh, let's do it. And then I suggested it for this show. And now I watch that performance again, and it is a sad company. Yeah. Who has been closed for a month already. Oh, gosh. And we've been seeing that actually quite a lot. A good number of the shows that we've talked about have closed prior to the Tony Awards. So they reunite and do their one-off performance, and that's oh, it. It's so wild. It's really sad. And uh, Leap of Faith was only nominated for one Tony, and that was Best Musical. And nothing else, hey? Nothing else? That's so bizarre to me. It's a little bizarre, but when you look again at the shows that were up or that were eligible, rather, it's very clear as to why they just didn't have room for Leap of Faith nominations. Plus, like Elliot said last time, why would they give a Tony or Tony noms to a show that's already closed? Unless it really merits them. Jill, should this be a musical? No! <laughs> God, no. Absolutely not. Ugh. Oh. No. Hard no. Never, ever. Yeah, I have no trouble agreeing with that. It's, I think maybe I would consider doing one or two of these songs in like, if I had a cabaret performance mm -hmm. where I had access to 10 to 12 ensemble members. Correct. Yes. I could see a couple of these songs seeing the light of day. Yeah, but it's not a story that we need. It's not a story that's never been told. Please go away. Yeah. And it doesn't tell anything well. In fact, it tells it that is at the best of times, boring and confusing and at the worst of times, outright offensive. So we clearly are on the same page. And I think that means, is this a flop? Is this a bop? Or do we need to make it stop? Ugh, let's make it stop. Make Just it stop. Make it stop. It's gotta go. Get it's it out of go. here. Absolutely. Yeah. Never again. Once again, maybe I'll do, I don't know what song. Are you on the bus or off the bus or back on the bus? At a, um, at a cabaret sometime. Okay. I will maybe not attend. But... <laughs> Fair. It will not be your cabaret. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
But yeah, I get it. Maybe put one of the songs in like the Alan Menken songbook. But other than that, just so that people never like don't forget that it happened. Yep. It's like we don't need to erase it. But oh, I think it's I think it's important that we don't forget. We have to examine <laughs> history so it doesn't repeat itself. Exactly. <laughs> erase it. Ba, ba, da, ba. Erase it. Erase it. How is Leap of Faith worse than Lestat? I don't know. I don't know. It's probably Carolee Carmelo just holding it together. Oh, Carolee Carmelo. Sh- she should have played. She should have played Marva. Oh my God. Can you imagine? <laughs> like doing like doing a full Lucille Bloom <laughs> Officer oh Wells person. That would be amazing to watch. You don't know this boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, what a treat this was. What a treat. Ladies and gentlemen, please remember to rate, review, subscribe. If you know a fellow musical theater nerd who you think would enjoy this podcast, by all means, send them our way. Thank you for listening. We've loved hearing from all of you, your feedback. It's been wonderful to connect with you. And so please continue to reach out in any way you'd like. And join us next week when we discuss Frank Wildhorn's Bonnie and Clyde. Woo! Bang, bang, bang. Goodbye. Bang, bang, bang. (laughs) I love you. See you then. That's Bonnie and Clyde, right? Uh, Yeah. Hi, everyone. This is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod, on Twitter at monkeyplaybills, or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theatre podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs>